Welcome to Spin It, a business podcast that takes you into the lives of some of today's most influential leaders, entrepreneurs, game changers, athletes, and many more. On Spin It, we take a deep dive into the lives and journeys of our guests to deliver real, unfiltered, and unscripted conversations that will surely inspire hope and promote change. We focus not on their current success, but on the obstacles and challenges that they faced along the way that often doesn't get talked about. How they battled adversity, getting up and being knocked down when all of the odds were stacked against them. My guest this week is Kara Golden, founder of Hint Water. For those of you who have not tasted Hint Water, Hint is an unsweetened flavored beverage. When Kara launched Hint, she actually launched it from her garage with the support of her husband, Theo. Kara's story is brilliant. Her tenacity, grit, and ability to never take no for an answer will deeply inspire you. Her book, Undaunted, was one of my favorite books to light a fire under anyone who's stalling. Her message, start now. Get out there and try. It won't be easy and it won't be straight, but failing is not an option now or ever. Welcome to the show, Kara. Hi, Kara. Welcome to the show. I am so excited to have you. I just am so thrilled that we get to have this discussion today. I'm so excited to be here. So I want to jump right in. I want to just be completely transparent. I just finished your book and anyone who's listening, um, you know, we always we always link the show notes, but I'm going to start off with Undaunted was probably one of the best books. Very, very easy read. Um, very smooth to get through. But it talks about sheer will, tenacity, grit, disruption, figuring things out. And I think any kind of mid-level manager to director to new VP, I think this just sheds such a breath of fresh air on so many people. What made you decide to write this book? Uh, well, thank you. I really appreciate that. Well, this actually stemmed out of my own journal. I never wrote a journal. I wasn't like a big diary writer even as a kid. I was a journalism major actually in school, but I just, I started writing a few years ago when people were asking me to come and speak and tell my story about how I had started Hint and why I had started Hint. And at the end, there's always this Q&A session where, you know, you've got your the audience asking questions and people would ask me these questions that sometimes they were similar questions, but sometimes they were ones that I was like, oh, wow, I've never been asked that before. And I would go back to my hotel room afterwards and I would actually use those questions, especially the ones that I had never heard as a prompt to start writing. And it was maybe just to sort of cure my boredom or too much watching television that I just started writing. And after a few years, I had a lot of pages. The stupidest thing I did was not number my pages because I had this entire book that I traveled with and was just writing all of you know the answers to these questions. And it was 600 pages after four years of writing. And I would write on the plane. I would write whenever I had time to kind of think about different things. And so after four years, I thought there's a lot of stuff in here that maybe people who aren't inside of companies that I'm speaking at or you know, don't go to the conferences that I'm speaking at, it would could really help them, not just entrepreneurs, but also maybe people who are in college and they're thinking about being an entrepreneur because I didn't have it all figured out. I didn't know I was going to be an entrepreneur, even though I had worked for a number of different entrepreneurs, either directly or indirectly. And I think people need to hear that. And so I asked a friend of mine who had written a few books, I said, how do I get my notes published? 
because like, how do I publish my journal? And she said, do you mean write a book? And I said, oh no, I could never write a book. I run a company. I don't know the first thing about writing books. And here I was doubting myself and being daunted. And so that's when she looked at the journal and she said, you've got a book here, at least one, maybe two. And I said, I don't even know where to start. And that's when I thought my curiosity kicked into gear. And I said, what the heck? You know, I'm not in a hurry. We'll see if it works. What's the worst that can happen? All the things that I say in my everyday life about everything. And I went and did it. And it's, uh, it's been a lot of fun. It's been a lot of fun to learn that whole industry and learn that I can do it more than anything else because I didn't think I could in the beginning either. So I love that you just said that, Kara, because it was basically the conversation you just had with me about you need to write a book. And I was like, no, yeah, <laughs> I couldn't organize my thoughts. I wouldn't even know where to start. It's not my industry. I'm not an expert. And you're like, you are an expert in your own life, Stephanie. Totally. totally. <laughs> yeah, I think that's amazing. And, and Kara, I think it's important to talk about how you grew up. And I think, you know, talking a little bit about you know, your independence as a child, you know, being the youngest of, I, I believe, five kids, right? Yes. That's yes. crazy. So often on your own, fending for yourself. What was that like? Yeah. Well, you know, it was interesting. My my parents had five kids and we almost had two different families, all the same parents, but my brother and sister are 15 and 16 years older than me. And then my parents stopped and then they decided to start again and then had three in a row. So I have a brother that's you know, three years older, sister is two years older, and then me. And so we weren't always living in the house at the same time together because my brother and sister were off at university or graduate school. And but they would come home like the, our summers were always incredibly full house. You know, we would be we'd have our own room and then we wouldn't have our own room, you know, after when the summer rolled around. And but I would just sit there partially because I wanted to spend time. I mean, my brother who's 15 years older was always doing really fun stuff. Like he'd have, he had an eight track tape player in his car and, you know, he would play cool music and he'd take me on, you know, rides with him or, you know, he was, I was like the little sister that I knew all his high school friends and they would just laugh at me. I was that girl. So I think more than anything, what I learned is that there's most people don't really have things figured out. And I would just like, I think I listened a lot. I also asked like my brother, it's funny. I was just talking to somebody about this the other day. My brother never like offered to take me to wherever, like on, I remember he was going to Disneyland one day with his girlfriend and I was like, can I go? And he's like, no, of course you can't go. And then all of a sudden he's like, I don't know. It might be kind of fun to bring her because like she'll think about rides differently, whatever. And so he took me. But like, if you don't ask, you don't get. Like little things like that along the way, I think I learned that I didn't know I was learning, but there were things, you know, like that. But I also started to realize early on that you had to work. Like in my house, we were super middle class. I mean, couldn't feel that sorry for us. I mean, we had a roof over our head and food on our table, but my parents were also like, they really, really believed in sports. And so we always had to be playing some kind of sport. And my parents didn't care what sport we played, but it was like, we were always doing something. So there were some times when I was always doing gymnastics or I was a big runner. But when those activities weren't going on, then I was finding something else to do. And so 
what I realized along the way is that you're not going to be great at everything. Like I was not very good at softball and, but I had to play girl softball and I had friends that were really good girl softball players. And I started recognizing that during certain seasons, it wasn't my time. Like I wasn't the star versus in gymnastics or in running. I was, that's where I really shined. And so I realized that people still wanted me on their teams though. And not because I was a good player, but because I showed up and because I laughed at myself and I always was okay to be around. Like I was fun to be around. And so little things like that, that I learned along the way, I think I just kept taking those into other parts of my life. And even just, I always wanted to stay busy too. And I always wanted to be doing something. So it's something that I think about a lot like I have the saying, complacency will kill you. And I really, really believe it in business and in life. Like if you just stop and you're just not doing anything, then that's where, you know, things start to halt for you, right? You don't learn anymore. Um, you don't stay relevant anymore. You always have to be up to something and, and sort of doing something along the way. And so just things like that. I think just being the last of five, again, in no particular order, but things that I learned more than anything. That's incredibly inspiring. And one of the things I want to talk about is, is I've, all, I've known about Hint for a very, very long time. We drink it in our house. We drink it at the office, not knowing about you until, you know, until the last year and a half or two. We've drank Hint. And when you were so kind and sent me all the things when you were coming on the podcast and you sent me the water and then you sent me the hand sanitizer. And then I think I got sunscreen and all these different things. It's complacency. It's like water's not enough. We're going to keep going. We're going to keep doing things better and better. And so there was so much alignment because I too was had a Diet Coke, like, you know, 10 a day and I was doing Diet Coke, Diet Coke, got an autoimmune disorder and they were like, no more, you're done with that. And again, water takes a long time to chop up that fruit and then it kind of gets mushy and gross. Reading your story, I want people to understand this was not an overnight success. You had massive skin in the game. When I look at you and Theo, which we'll talk about later, putting <laughs> personal guarantees against your home with four children, that is nerve wracking. This was not easy for you, Kara, and you kept going and you kept going and you kept going. I want to talk about, because I don't think anybody knows this and this was hugely fascinating for me, can you walk our listeners through briefly just what it takes to actually stock in a grocery store. Because I, before I read your book, thought, oh, you just ship it very nicely over and yeah. they put it very pretty on the on the, uh, on the the shelves. And that's not the case. Can you talk about that? You know, it depends on your product. But in our case, we're a natural product. And so there's different types of grocery stores that you can get into depending on whether or not you're a natural product. If you're a product that maybe Coca-Cola, just as an example, if Coca-Cola was starting today, actually maybe because they were actually started as more of a pharmaceutical product and sort of a healthy perception product initially. Maybe they could charm their way into Whole Foods, but Whole Foods in general takes on these healthier and better for you ideas. And I mention that because sometimes other people might start in like a mass store, like a Safeway or a Kroger, some sort of grocery store overall. But we started in a specialty store and I literally like walked into a grocery store, Whole Foods, or sorry, into a specialty store, Whole Foods and said, hey, I want to get my product on the shelf. 
I had no idea that I had to have a certain shelf life for the product, that it had to have a certain number of months. And the funny thing is, is even when I achieved what I thought I was supposed to have based on them saying, okay, you need to have, you know, at least three months shelf life. And I said, well, I have six weeks shelf life. And they'd say, okay, we'll let you in, but you eventually have to get to three months. I felt like the bar just kept getting raised. Like, I'm like, wait, you told me this. And they're like, oh, well, it really needs to be three months. Okay, then I get to three months. Oh, it needs to be six months. Oh, and by the way, we want to have you in our Denver stores. And I'm like, oh, well, I can't really drive my Grand Cherokee to Denver because I have four kids and I don't know how that's all going to happen. Do you have somebody who can distribute the product for me? And they're like, well, do you have a warehouse in Denver? I'm like, you just told me five minutes ago that I'm supposed to be in Denver. How am I supposed to get it to Denver? (laughs) This was my life. And I just kept trying to figure out exactly how to make it happen along the way. And I think in some ways it was frustrating. I won't lie. Like there were things that happened every single day that I thought, why am I doing this? But I think also I was so curious about it because there was this whole new world that existed out there. And, you know, it's funny. People would say to me, if you're going to, I'd been a tech executive before and decided to go into this crazy world of beverage. People would say, well, don't stay out of tech for very long because if you do, you won't be employable. And then I would talk to them about the beverage industry. And then they're like, you know, maybe you should just leave and come back to, you know, tech. And I'm thinking, what is the timeline that I have to make that decision? I mean, isn't there, I mean, can I just do it if I just really decide that it's just not going to work? And I think more than anything, I believe that my fallback was I could always go back into tech, but many people didn't. They thought I was ruining my career by totally switching industries. And I think that I always tell people that family and friends are the worst, right? They actually don't want you to take any risk at all. And so they're like, oh, Stephanie, you really shouldn't be doing that, that you should be doing this instead. And no one really knows. That's the truth. And they mean well. They're not trying to like doubt you. They're just giving you their opinion, whatever. But that's what I was faced with. And again, no one really understood the beverage industry that I knew. I didn't know people that worked at Big Soda or had ever done a beverage company. This was like a whole new world out there. Even people that I went to college with, like I didn't know anybody that went into the beverage industry. So I had no network to actually help me. And that's a whole other topic because little did I know that actually coming into an industry with a whole new lens and asking questions like, why does my product need to have preservatives in it? I was willing to ask questions and be humbled every single day. But what I didn't know was a lot of the questions that I was asking actually had never been answered. So people weren't doing a product with real fruit in it that didn't have preservatives in it. And little did I know that even though people said to me, well, it just can't, I kept saying, okay, but why? And a few times people would throw me out of their office, not literally throw me, but they would just be like, go away, you're, you're annoying. And, you know, I don't have time for this conversation. But then other people would be like, I have no idea. I just do my job. I, tur- I flip the switch every single day. And that's when I, I think my curiosity more than anything kicked into gear all those years of, you know, my parents saying, don't do that, or I don't know. 
And I and I would just keep going. I was relentless. I would just keep asking. And so it all kind of connects at some point. So we align on so many things and we have since our very first conversation. So, you know, listening a ton, listening to all the things that are not being said, trying to figure it out, asking really hard, disruptive questions and not apologizing about it. Like, I'm okay with your answer. It's completely fine. Just tell me what the answer is and then I'll figure out another way to do it. There's so many things where we we align. Before we talk about your tech career, because we're going to do that, I, I love I have always said when people have asked me on podcasts or when, whenever I speak, when I'm doing public speaking or I'm on a stage and there's Q&A, what made you want to become an entrepreneur? And I said, I had a tiger chasing me. Like I, I didn't, I didn't, I had a very successful career. Like I was the youngest, like you, I was the youngest VP of a public company in Silicon Valley at 26 years old. Mm -hmm. And people are like, oh my God, that's great. Is it like, is it really great? Cause yeah. there's a lot of things I didn't know. Not, there was no Google. You can't search things. And so when I was reading Undaunted, there were so many things where I'm like flipping through the pages and highlighting and going, me too, me too. Before we go into the tech career that was so instrumental in your life and the way you did it, okay, I want to talk about Fortune Magazine because I didn't realize this, Kara, that your dream was to work for Fortune Magazine and it never happened. First of all, why did you want to work for Fortune? And then second of all, do you ever wonder like, what if? Interesting question. So I was a journalism major in college and with a minor in finance. I didn't plan on ever going into finance. And some friends of mine were taking, they were finance majors or business majors, and they were taking some classes. And frankly, I thought it'd be fun to take some classes with some of my friends. And I had space in my schedule and, and they were, you know, beginning level finance classes. So I thought, okay, I, I could go into those classes. And so they were the hardest classes for me. My brain did not work in that way. And I remember getting like my first C on, on a test. I mean, I never got C's on my papers. I was just, I was always a writer and, you know, my communications classes, it was just, it, it was just, it came easy for me. And so I remember walking up to my professor in finance saying, I'm like kind of devastated. I'm wondering if I should drop this class because I just, I don't know what I've gotten myself into. And what he shared with me was that, you know, eventually it'll click. You just haven't been around this. You just have to stick with it. If you need any help, I'm here. But you should really start getting a subscription to the Wall Street Journal and to and to Fortune magazine because maybe some of this, like reading that in, you know, your non-class time, maybe things will start to click a little bit more. And I thought, oh my God, now I'm in finance all the time. Like this is just that is not I want to read People magazine. I don't want to be reading Fortune magazine or Wall Street Journal. But I thought, okay, I cannot get a C in a class. I'm gonna like you know, keep going along. Anyway, when I ended up getting through this class, I got an A in the class in the end. And I never thought I would be able to like, I would have been happy, I think with a B, like I was just like, how do I get this up? And then finally, I just really cranked through it. And a lot of the reason was that I forced myself to sit in a room quietly and read the Wall Street Journal. And I'm like, okay, concepts are starting to click. And then finally, Anyway, that netted into, I got a minor in finance and I was proud of myself and I would laugh. I mean, there's a story in there about my 
roommates decorating my room with Wall Street Journal newspapers because I wouldn't let anybody throw out my Wall Street Journal like it was like sacred. And I would read them for weeks and then I would finally sit down on a weekend and throw them out when I when I was finally done. But it was um, it was when I was looking for a job, people kept asking me what I was going to do. And I thought, you know, Fortune magazine really helped me to kind of figure this stuff out. That'd be really cool if I could go get a job there. And friends of mine would say, well, they're not coming on campus. How are you going to get a job there? And I'm like, I don't know. I'm just going to write to the managing director. They're like, how did you figure out who the managing director was? And I'm like, maybe I need a new set of friends. They they can't <laughs> figure out that they how who the managing director is. And this is before Google. Right, of this course. This is before all the stuff. Yeah. But you just look inside the masthead of the magazine. And I was, you know, there was an address in there. There People didn't email back then. But I just, like, wrote a letter. And I typed it out on my computer and I wrote a letter to him and he wrote back and he said if you're ever in the New York area I would love to meet you I love your story and by the way I didn't just send like some standard email or standard letter to him saying like here's my resume I said I want to tell you about why I want to come work for you and how your magazine touched me and so I had this memorable moment and this memorable story to share with him. And here the guy is, you know, he's like Fortune Magazine, Mr. Fortune Magazine. And here this college student is telling him that he wants to come work with them. So he he be, didn't commit to giving me a job interview. But what he said was, if you're ever in the New York area. So that's when I took that invitation. People said, well, I don't know if he means like if you're really in the New York area. And I'm like, I'm not going to ask him. I'm just going to go there. Why not? And I'm going to just show up. And uh, and so I did. And what was interesting is when sort of the my wall, my my stop was uh, the gatekeepers, as I call them, was the HR office. And they were like, oh, yeah, I mean, Mr. Loeb, Marshall Loeb was the managing director, doesn't actually hire people right out of college. I mean, I think what he intended by writing you this letter was just to, he just wanted to be nice to you. And I was like, oh, well, I'm leaving tomorrow. They're like, you flew here? And I, I said, I did. And is there any other job here? And they just didn't know what to do with me. I mean, I think it's kind of been, in many ways, the story of my life. Like, I think if you show up and you have this maybe part deer in the headlights, part endearing, part, you know, just, okay. I'm going to make your life easier. I'm going to inspire and I'm going to impact. Like yeah, I, and I, I show up and I just start unpacking and I'm like, what can I do? What can you do? And you <laughs> laugh. And somebody told me I was in a meeting yesterday and somebody said that like humor, there's no place for humor. And I can't remember what the question was exactly, but it was, it was interesting because I think back and so often, I mean, I'm not like, you know, Jerry Seinfeld, ish, you know, when I'm walking, but, but if you can be endearing in some way yeah. where people, people want to work with people want to engage with people who are smiling, who are, you know, open, who are sort of not taking themselves so seriously. Maybe they really are taking themselves seriously, but they are willing to kind of take a risk on things. I don't know what it is, but there's something about people like that, that I think people will 
sort of give them a shot. And that was my story. And then I ended up getting the interview at time and just going for it and figuring that eventually maybe I'll meet Marshall Loeb in the elevator and he'll just say, wait, why didn't I hire you? I remember you, whatever. That never happened. But it's funny, actually, my boss at time was very good friends with his son. I didn't know his son worked at at time. And he was at the time, he was the ad director for Sports Illustrated. And so he used to, it's a long, crazy story, but my boss, Brooke, her husband had passed away before I actually came into time. And so Michael Loeb used to come and visit Brooke just to check in on her. And her husband was Michael's, one of Michael's best friends. And so Michael used to always pop over to the office. And I learned that Brooke was a widow at a very young age from Michael. And so Michael and I just started talking. And I never brought up until I got to know him a little bit better a couple of months in that I had written this letter to your father. I really wanted to work for Fortune magazine because there just wasn't an opportunity to do that. But after a while, like I think he saw my work ethic and he saw that he just joked around with me. He said, you know, what school did you go to? How did you get a job here? You flew yourself here. And then finally it came out. He said, no way. I, I cannot believe it that you tried to get a job with my dad. And what did my dad say? And what was so funny, fast forward many, many years later, when I was launching the book, I sent I sent Undaunted to Michael. Marshall has since uh, passed, but I sent the book to Michael and I said, I know you know the story. And I just thought you would find it endearing. And he wrote me a note back and he said, I just wanted to tell you that my dad definitely wrote the letter because I talk about it in there. Like maybe it was a dear John, maybe his assistant wrote or whatever. He said, no, my dad definitely wrote that letter and said he would always do that. He had the soft spot for college students who actually took risks and wanted to work for him. And he was so busy that obviously he couldn't meet with everybody, but he absolutely, he loved the underdogs. He loved the people that tried to stand out in some way. And so he was, he loved, he loved that about the book for sure. So before we move on to AOL, I have a couple of questions about that. Do you do that now? Like when somebody sends a personal letter to you at Hint, when they send it and they're, because the one thing that struck me different about this, Kara, was you didn't just send your resume and a cover letter. You said, this is what inspired me. This is why. This is why I can contribute. This is why I can make an impact. You were very, yeah. as a college student, which is crazy. Do you get those letters now? You know, I get the letters. I'm pretty active on social. And so I get a lot of those notes okay. on social. And I get a lot less actual snail mail, but I, I used to. And I think you have to figure out a way to stand out too. And I think in today's day and age... One of the things that I share with college students is don't wait for people to come to you, right? I said that that's where you're going to have much more competition. It's the places where you can actually, you know, stand out. Maybe you figure out, oh, I, maybe you say, oh, I heard you on a podcast or I saw your talk on YouTube and you were talking about this and that really touched me or you were sitting in an audience somewhere, make it personalize it in some way. Or I always say to people like, let's say you want to be a 
journalist, go and find something that somebody wrote, right? And talk to them, especially if it's like a meaty article that is, you know, a few pages or, you know, pretty lengthy. Talk to them about it because it probably took a long time, right? And it probably was really hard to get through. And when you have somebody who recognizes that, everybody likes to hear that kind of stuff. So I think it's very, it's finding that little gem and ways to stand out. And, and frankly, I think that's the same in business, right? How many people in our industry like want to get into Whole Foods? How many people want to get into Target or Costco or whatever? Those poor buyers. I mean, in the beverage industry, there's over 3,000 beverages, if I would have known that when I was starting a beverage, I never would have started a beverage. I, I never like spent the time to figure it out, which is a whole other lesson. Like sometimes if you overthink things, you'll never go, right? Because you'll, you'll make yourself so scared that you won't be able to climb that wall or knock that wall down or however you want to envision it. So I think that there are, you have to figure out ways that you're going to stand out in every aspect of life. And I think that, again, I want everybody to get the book because the book was amazing. And it was it was so cute and so personal because just the interaction with you and Theo late at night, just all of the different things when he's like, hey, just getting back from a business meeting. He's like, Kara, we can't do this. And you're like, okay, how can we do that? And he's like, no, you don't understand. We, we can't do that. And you're like, yeah, again, okay, how can we do that? I just think that interaction of never, I mean, this is, this is your husband. This is somebody that you are growing with. This is somebody who's getting ready to leave a major company and come join your company. And he keeps telling you no. And you're like, okay, yeah, great. Good night. We'll do this again tomorrow. That's the tenacity. And that's the grit that is so impeccable. That's followed you through your entire career. Because I want to talk about AOL and being the youngest person, the youngest vice president in their history. That's like no joke. AOL, did you ever feel like you didn't belong in the room? Did you ever feel like you were too young or didn't know enough? You know, I think like the thing for me was I'd worked for a little startup that was acquired. And when they acquired our startup, they took, you know, a chunk of us went into America Online. And part of it was actually interesting. One of the stories that I talk about, I don't I think it was actually, or it was cut from the book, but it was, um, I was laid off when they acquired us and they asked us to come in. And then it was a crazy story because I was commuting from San Francisco. They said, basically, if everybody, you all have to eventually move to DC where we were based or just outside of DC by the Dulles airport. And I was not going to move. My husband was at Netscape and he had, you know, he had to take a bar exam. He was an attorney. So it was a lot more complicated for him to, you know, get up and move and go take a new bar exam. But so I wasn't going to move. So basically they, they laid all of us off who weren't going to move. And then it was funny because my husband had this conference and he was actually, he wasn't at Netscape yet. He was at a, a law firm and he had this conference down in San Diego. And so I was down in San Diego and I get this call from my boss, Meyer, who was like this new guy that was in, I hadn't actually met Meyer. And Meyer was like, hey, what you doing? I'm like, oh, I'm on a beach in San Diego. And he was like, what are you doing on a beach in San Diego? And I said, oh, I'm just here because 
my husband has this conference and he's like, well, shouldn't you be working? And I'm like, uh, I don't work for AOL anymore. He's like, you're kidding. Wait, what? You don't work for me anymore? I said, no, you guys laid me off. You invested all my stock. You, you know, you, I'm gone. He was like, well, that can't happen. Like what, why, how did you like leave? And I said, well, you guys told me I had to move and I told you I couldn't move. And then you laid me off and they said, oh my God, this is crazy. So Meyer flew out to, I was home in San Francisco the next day and Meyer flew out and then they renegotiated my contract and like gave me some more shares and like brought me back in. And so I was only off for, I think like a couple of weeks officially, but it was funny because it was a story of, it was, I didn't know that I was in this like hockey stick. It was truly the wild west. I mean, the stuff and the stories that went on yes. there, like the fact that, how do you not know that somebody's been laid off in your company? I mean, it was just, it was so chaotic. And every day you just got up and you said, okay, what can we do? But again, I didn't know I was living it. There's so many people today that I think would look at that situation and they'd say it's unmanageable. And maybe in many ways, like my training of being the last of five kids and figuring stuff out, I just was like, ah, whatever, you know, it either works or it doesn't work. I either go back to AOL or I don't go back to AOL. But I sort of realized too that I thrive in chaos. And I think that for me, it was, it was a lot of fun. I mean, a lot of people have said to me, did you hate being in tech? Cause it was, you know, so male dominated. And I I'm like, no, I mean, not every day was perfect by any stretch, right. but there were actually what I loved about it was kind of a metaphor that I talk about a lot for entrepreneurs, which is, I felt like there was this puzzle to be built yet. Nobody had given me the picture. And I think when you think about entrepreneurship, whether you're the the founder or whether you're working in like an entrepreneurial environment, which is trying to, which is really in building mode, which is where I was at AOL, certainly, and many other uh, roles as well. Maybe you're working in an innovation team inside of a large company. Like you don't really, you have a goal, but you don't really know if you're going to achieve those goals, right? You're going to keep growing as you're going. And then you're going to be really aware and you're going to stop maybe for a minute and kind of see how it's all working out. And then you just keep figuring out how to build on that. I feel like that sort of trained me to be able to kind of do my own company at more than anything else, because it was, we didn't know where we were headed. It's, that's what's so fun. I think even looking back on this book, like so many people have reached out to me, kind of Gen Xers that have, have lived through the nineties. I mean, it was a crazy, crazy time where, you know, nobody really, there was no broadband. We were, you know, AOL was kind of the platform that people went on in order to chat with their friends for the first time. You know, there was ICQ was sort of the backbone to chat, but people didn't really know, the consumer didn't know much about exactly how it all worked. They just wanted it to work. They didn't want to, when their, you know, brother or sister picked up the phone, they didn't want to be connected from their online service, right? And that's mm -hmm. what was happening. And right. And so there were things that we were trying to figure out internally that we knew that the technology wasn't there yet. And if the technology ever got there, then we would be able to do a lot more. But we didn't know we were living through a time when 
I mean, the internet was being created. And there were a lot of things where people have called me kind of thinking about things like broadband. And one of the people I had on my podcast was kind of the grandfather of broadband, this guy, Avram Miller, who's, who's terrific. You should have him on your podcast. He's awesome. And he's hysterical. But, you know, nobody knew how to make things faster. And then finally, somebody focused on it. And then once you have people who just sit there and focus on it for a while and think about things, I mean, things start to get figured out. But until people do and they feel like it's important enough, then they don't. So this is the time that I think, you know, I lived through and the curiosity of of working in an industry like that. We didn't know whether or not things were going to pan out, but and some things did. So things didn't. But I think that helped me to be able to have the confidence to go and do something hard uh, later on. So we're running out of time and I want to be super respectful yeah. of your time, but I only have another 646 questions. So hopefully <laughs> you've cleared your day. Now I want to talk about you and your leadership at Hint. I want to talk about you as a leader, your feedback that you get from your direct reports. What makes your leadership style so different than what it was as you were coming up as a leader? What makes it different at Hint? So I think one of the things that's different, I always share this with people when they're joining companies too, outside of Hint that are where the founder is still there. You think about when the founder is still at any company in any industry, they've done every job, almost every job, right? And so they're going to have opinions about the way their opinions might be kind of dated, but a great founder is a good resource, right, to sort of think about things. And I also think that a great founder and CEO is great at, like, hiring people that are better than them at that task, right? So maybe, you know, I was doing my own customer service initially, but then I hired somebody that knew how to do customer service at scale, processes, like all of those things. But my theory has always been go and figure out how to do something first, partly because that's how you stay scrappy, right? And that's how you save yes. resources, all those kind of things. But then you go in and hire people that can actually do those roles. I'm actually of the belief that you hand over the keys, right, to those people. You're always there, but let them go do their job. But always checking in along the way. I do not do weekly meetings. I'm here as a resource, but I do not do standing meetings, which is something that people have to get used to, honestly, when they come into our company, because I will not do standing meetings just for the sake of having a meeting. I'm here when you need me as a resource, and I'm also a big believer that that my direct reports need to manage up. So they need to actually tell me what I need to know they also need to yes. tell me what I need to be concerned about before <sighs> it's a problem. That is so literally another thing. So signal early and and why have standing one-on-ones? Like I hired you and, and you're, you're – Kara, it's like don't micromanage. I hired you to be better than me. You know, I want to work myself out of a job. Like my goal is to work myself out of a job. I need to know and I want to understand and I want to support and I want to be a resource like you said, but I don't want to do your job for you because that's why you're here. And so we don't need standing one-on-ones. We don't need any of that. Let me text me, call me, like, let's have a conversation, but be succinct and let me know what you need to get to the next level. Yeah. And I think that the problem is it's sort of like this, it's the same issue as hiring experienced people because you they learn 
maybe they've been working in large corporations over the years and that's the way that they've always done it. And they're not used to doing things differently. And, but again, like I wouldn't hire people into those roles if I didn't believe that they could do the job and that they could add right. value to the job. And so I'm a big believer like that that needs to happen. Does it always happen perfectly? No. But I also think that the other thing that I do is jump in and want to know about certain things going on. Like right now, today, just as, a, as an example, over the last like two weeks, I've been all over SEO inside my company. The people who are managing SEO in our company don't like me very much right now because I'm, I'm in there asking questions. I know enough about SEO to get me in trouble and they know more than I do, but I'm like, why haven't we done this? What about this? What, how are you thinking about this? And then it ends up that they've done a lot of these things, but I'm like, it's your job to actually manage up to me and tell me these things and tell me in English. Don't tell me the way that you you know, would tell an engineer that you're having build out something. I want something, I want two paragraphs, really easy. And you tell me, and when I start asking questions, what you need to say to yourself is, I'm not actually doing, I'm going to own the fact I'm not doing a great job of actually telling you what you need to know to feel confident in my ability to do it. And when I, and I think that that is a great lesson for anybody listening when you're inside of a corporation, whether you have weekly standing meetings with your boss or not, over communicate. And that doesn't mean ask your boss how to do something. That means, hey, I just wanted to keep you, I just wanted to give you a quick update. I'm working on this, blah, 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 like really interesting. Or we have this problem way before it becomes a nightmare. And here's one of the things that I'm looking at doing. But in addition to that, if you have any suggestions, you don't have to have suggestions, but if you have any suggestions, please share those with me as well. That is the type of person that will grow inside of any company or become an entrepreneur, right? They're problem solvers. They'll manage up. They'll tell you what you need to know. And those are the people that you want to have on your team. And the people that come to you with a problem, but don't just go, hey, Kara, here's a problem. They don't toss it over to you. They say, Kara, we're looking at this as potentially be a risk. Here are some ways that we're thinking of solving it letting you know early, you don't need to do anything right now, but this is what I'm doing. Not just presenting the problem and tossing it over and going, we have this issue. Like your job is to fix the issue. Totally. And I tell people that all the time. I mean, it's especially when you're coming into an organization, there's this uh, idea that you're always supposed to tell your boss if you if there's a problem. But in addition to that, like chapter two is you can't like, get by without reading chapter two, you have to like move on to it. You have to at least take a step, even if you're not, even if you're wrong. And that is not the direction. Any boss will look at your tenacity and your resourcefulness, even though you're just off the mark every single time. Like the fact that you actually take a stab at saying, here's what I suggest, instead of saying, I'm going to dump this problem on you. And maybe you're not even intending to do that, but you're signaling that that's what you're doing and that you have just, you know, instead of me having 15 other problems, I've now got 16. 
and 17 because I'm sitting here thinking I've actually got this person who was not a problem solver. So how did this happen? Yeah. And maybe this <laughs> yes. person huh. or the, the 18th problem is, is that they're managing people yeah. that, you know, they're not probably solving their problems because they're too worried about having this problem. So I feel like there's be a problem solver. Think about ways that you can actually make an attempt. Again, you're not going to be right every single time. It might not be the right way, but the fact that you even take a stroke trying to figure something out says a lot about you and is so much more than what a lot of other people would be capable of, of doing. So that's such a great point. We just had a workshop on that very subject because somebody thought they were coming over and basically, you know, showing me a problem. And I really stopped what I was doing for the entire day. And I said, you know what, we're going to have a little workshop on problem solving and what those skills look like. Mm -hmm. And I did exactly what you did. I said, you, you thought you came to me with one problem, but let me just show you. And I basically webbed it. So like mind up and I yeah. basically just, and I said, so this is now what's in my head. And, I, and the only reason why I'm showing this to you, because I am not expecting this of you guys, but what I'm showing you is that was one of you. So now imagine seven of you coming to me and what that looks like. So I think you absolutely nailed it. You probably won't be right, but you know what? You tried and you gave it a stab and you, you went the extra mile for it. So that's amazing. Exactly. So Kara, you know, the show is about turning obstacles and opportunities. Our final question, what is the largest obstacle that you've had to deal with that you've been able to turn into an opportunity? You know, I think there's been so many obstacles along the way, but I think more than anything, like just being able to figure out, I mean, this company, Hint, it's like today we're the largest non privately held non-alcoholic beverage in the country that doesn't have a relationship with Coke, Pepsi, or Dr. Pepper Snapple. I never, everybody else described our company as taking on soda, taking on big sugar or diet sweeteners early on. I never described it that way. Like that to me would have been way too daunting. I didn't even describe it as like starting my own company. I was like launching a product on the shelf at Whole Foods. And if it failed, I'd have a lot more in my pantry. I mean, that for me was like easier to sort of stomach and compartmentalize in, in some way. But I think that sort of knowing where we've been and where we are is just, it's pretty great. And I think on top of that, I'm still standing. I'm still, my kids still like me. And, you know, that whole conversation too is, is another podcast of, you know, how I've never believed you can have it all. I definitely, there's been moments where, you know, I don't have any friends. Thank God mm -hmm. for texting and being able to have, you know, conversations through in that way, because I think I don't get to spend as much time with uh, family and friends as, as I would like. But I believe that along the way, being able to do what I'm really passionate about and what I'm really interested in and being able to teach my kids that that's what's really important and that you will fail, you will have challenges along the way. I think that that is a, I never knew sort of how it would all work out, truly. There were points along the way that I had the guilt of like maybe mm -hmm. I shouldn't be working because most of the people around me who are mothers are not working and they're educated and you know they can do big things, but they're not because they're feeling like they shouldn't. And I heard those messages, right? But And I wondered myself, but I also felt like I could change an industry for the better. And I feel like we have. And I think that's probably 
the combination of the two are probably the biggest kind of hurdles that I wasn't sure were all going to work out, but they have. Kara, you are um, so inspiring. I mean, just to me, myself personally, I can't wait till you come out. Um, I can't wait to sit down and have drinks and dinner with you. Um, You're so inspiring. You're so impactful. You're an amazing mother, amazing leader, amazing entrepreneur. Thank you so much for coming on the show. Where can our listeners find more more about you? Yeah, so all over social, like Kara Golden with an I, and hopefully you'll pick up a copy of the book Undaunted, Overcoming Doubts and Doubters, and maybe even some of the Hint drinks or sunscreen or any of the other products that we've come out with too. I think, uh, you know, I'd love to hear from you as well if you want to shoot me a DM. That sounds awesome, Kara. Thank you again so much. Thank you. Thanks for listening to Spin It. If you enjoyed listening, don't forget to hit that subscribe button to be notified when a new episode is released. Also, head over to YouTube to check out all of the live videos on our new podcast channel, Spin It with Stephanie Malik. The best way to support the show is to leave me a five-star review on Apple Podcasts or your favorite podcast app. And if you want to hear more from me, hop over to Instagram and follow me at Stephanie Malik. That's Stephanie with a Y, S-T-E-P-H-Y-N-I-E Malik, M-A-L-I-K, or visit my website at stephaniemalik.com.